Chapter twenty one and twenty two of the Grand Babylon Hotel. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Anna Simon. The Grand Babylon Hotel by Arnold Bennett. Chapter twenty one The Return of Felix Babylon. On the evening of Prince Eugen's fateful interview with Mr. Sampson Levi, Theodore Rexel was wandering somewhat aimlessly and uneasily about the entrance hall and adjacent corridors of the Grand Babylon. He had returned from Ostend only a day or two previously, and had endeavoured, with all his might, to forget the affair which had carried him there, to regard it, in fact, as done with. But he found himself unable to do so. In vain he remarked, under his breath, that there were some things which were best left alone. If his experience as a manipulator of markets, a contriver of gigantic schemes in New York, had taught him anything at all, it should surely have taught him that. Yet he could not feel reconciled to such a position. The mere presence of the princess in his hotel roused the fighting instincts of this man, who had never in his whole career been beaten. He had, as it were, taken up arms on their side, and if the princes of Posen would not continue their own battle, nevertheless he, Theodore Rexel, wanted to continue it for them. To a certain extent, of course, the battle had been won, for Prince Eugen had been rescued from an extremely difficult and dangerous position, and the enemy, consisting of Jules, Rocco, Miss Spencer, and perhaps others, had been put to flight. But that, he conceived, was not enough. It was very far from being enough. That the criminals, for criminals they decidedly were, should still be at large, he regarded as an absurd anomaly. And there was another point. He had said nothing to the police of all that had occurred. He disdained the police, but he could scarcely fail to perceive that if the police should by accident gain a clue to the real state of the case, he might be placed rather awkwardly, for the simple reason that in the eyes of the law it amounted to a misdemeanour to conceal as much as he had concealed. He asked himself, for the thousandth time, why he had adopted a policy of concealment from the police, why he had become in any way interested in the Posen matter and why, at this present moment, he should be so anxious to prosecute it further. To the first two questions he replied, rather lamely, that he had been influenced by Nella, and also by a natural spirit of adventure. To the third he replied that he had always been in the habit of carrying things through, and was now actuated by a mere childish, obstinate desire to carry this one through. Moreover, he was splendidly conscious of his perfect ability to carry it through. One additional impulse he had, though he did not admit it to himself, being by nature adverse to big words, and that was an abstract love of justice, the Anglo-Saxon's deep-found instinct for helping the right side to conquer, even when grave risks must thereby be run, with no corresponding advantage. He was turning these things over in his mind as he walked about the vast hotel on that evening of the last day in July. The society papers had been stating for a week past that London was empty, but, in spite of the society papers, London persisted in seeming to be just as full as ever. The Grand Babylon was certainly not as crowded as it had been a month earlier, but it was doing a very passable business. At the close of the season the gay butterflies of the social community have a habit of hovering for a day or two in the big hotels, before they flutter away to castle and country house, meadow and moor, lake and stream. The great basket chairs in the portico were well filled by old and middle-aged gentlemen engaged in enjoying the varied delights of liqueurs, cigars, and the full moon which floated so serenely above the Thames. Here and there a pretty woman, on the arm of a cavalier in immaculate attire, swept her train as she turned to and fro in the promenade of the terrace. 
Waiters and uniformed commissionaires and gold-braided doorkeepers moved noiselessly about. At short intervals the chief of the doorkeepers blew his shrill whistle and hansoms drove up with tinkling bell to take away a pair of butterflies to some place of amusement or boredom. Occasionally a private carriage, drawn by expensive and self-conscious horses, put the hansoms to shame by its mere outward glory. It was a hot night, a night for the summer woods, and save for the vehicles there was no rapid movement of any kind. It seemed as though the world, the world, that is to say, of the Grand Babylon, was fully engaged in the solemn processes of digestion and small talk. Even the long row of the embankment gas-lamps, stretching right and left, scarcely trembled in the still, warm, caressing air. The stars overhead looked down with many blinkings upon the enormous pile of the Grand Babylon, and the moon regarded it with bland and changeless face. What they thought of it and its inhabitants cannot, unfortunately, be recorded. What Theodore Rexel thought of the moon can be recorded. He thought it was a nuisance. It somehow fascinated his gaze with its silly stare, and so interfered with his complex meditations. He glanced round at the well-dressed and satisfied people, his guests, his customers. They appeared to ignore him absolutely. Probably only a very small percentage of them had the least idea that this tall, spare man, with the iron-gray hair and the thin, firm, resolute face, who wore his American-cut evening clothes with such careless ease, was the sole proprietor of the Grand Babylon, and possibly the richest man in Europe. As has already been stated, Rexel was not a celebrity in England. The guests of the Grand Babylon saw merely a restless male person, whose restlessness was rather a disturber of their quietude but with whom, to judge by his countenance, it would be inadvisable to remonstrate. Therefore Theodore Rexel continued his perambulations unchallenged, and kept saying to himself, "'I must do something.' But what? He could think of no course to pursue. At last he walked straight through the hotel, and out at the other entrance, and so up the little unassuming side-street into the roaring torrent of the narrow and crowded strand. He jumped on a Putney bus, and paid his fare to Putney, fivepence, and then, finding that the humble occupants of the vehicle stared at the spectacle of a man in evening dress but without a dust-coat, he jumped off again, oblivious of the fact that the conductor jerked a thumb towards him and winked at the passengers as who should say, "'There goes a lunatic.' He went into a tobacconist's shop and asked for a cigar. The shopman mildly inquired what price. "'What are the best you've got?' asked Theodore Rexel. Five shillings each, sir,' said the man promptly. "'Give me a penny one,' was Theodore Rexel's laconic request, and he walked out of the shop smoking the penny cigar. It was a new sensation for him. He was inhaling the aromatic odours of Eugene Rimmel's establishment for the sale of scents, when a gentleman, walking slowly in the opposite direction, accosted him with a quiet, "'Good evening, Mr. Rexel.' The millionaire did not at first recognise his interlocutor, who wore a travelling overcoat and was carrying a handbag. Then a slight, pleased smile passed over his features, and he held out his hand. "'Well, Mr. Babylon,' he greeted the other, "'of all persons in the wide world you are the man I would most have wished to meet.' "'You flatter me,' said the little anglicised Swiss. "'No, I don't,' answered Rexel. "'It isn't my custom, any more than it's yours. I wanted to have a real good long yarn with you.' And lo, here you are. Where have you sprung from? From Lausanne, said Felix Babylon. I had finished my duties there, and I had nothing else to do, and I felt homesick. 
I felt the nostalgia of London, and so I came over, just as you see. And he raised the handbag for Rexall's notice. One toothbrush, one razor, two slippers, eh? He laughed. I was wondering as I walked along where I should stay. Me, Felix Babylon, homeless in London. I should advise you to stay at the Grand Babylon, Rexall laughed back. It is a good hotel, and I know the proprietor personally. Rather expensive, is it not? said Babylon. To you, sir, answered Rexall, the inclusive terms will be exactly half a crown a week. Do you accept? I accept, said Babylon, and added, You are very good, Mr. Rexall. They strolled together back to the hotel, saying nothing in particular, but feeling very content with each other's company. Many customers? asked Felix Babylon. Very tolerable, said Rexall, assuming as much of the air of the professional hotel proprietor as he could. I think I may say, in the storekeeper's phrase, that if there is any business about, I am doing it. Tonight the people are all on the terrace in the portico. It's so confoundedly hot, and the consumption of ice is simply enormous, nearly as large as it would be in New York. In that case, said Babylon politely, let me offer you another cigar. But I have not finished this one. That is just why I wish to offer you another one. A cigar such as yours, my good friend, ought never to be smoked within the precincts of the Grand Babylon, not even by the proprietor of the Grand Babylon, and especially when all the guests are assembled in the portico. The fumes of it would ruin any hotel. Theodore Wexel laughingly lighted the road-shield Havana which Babylon gave him, and they entered the hotel arm in arm. But no sooner had they mounted the steps than little Felix became the object of numberless greetings. It appeared that he had been highly popular among his quondam guests. At last they reached the managerial room where Babylon was regaled on a chicken, and Rexall assisted him in the consumption of a bottle of Heidsieck monopole, Cardor. "'This chicken is almost perfectly grilled,' said Babylon at length. "'It is a credit to the house. But why, my dear Rexall, why in the name of heaven did you quarrel with Rocco?' "'Then you've heard?' "'Heard?' My dear friend, it was in every newspaper on the continent. Some journals prophesied that the Grand Babylon would have to close its doors within half a year now that Rocco had deserted it. But of course I knew better. I knew that you must have a good reason for allowing Rocco to depart, and that you must have made arrangements in advance for a substitute. As a matter of fact, I had not made arrangements in advance, said Theodore Rexall, a little ruefully. But happily we have found in our second sous-chef an artist inferior only to Rocco himself. That, however, was mere good fortune. Surely, said Babylon, it was indiscreet to trust to mere good fortune in such a serious matter. I didn't trust to mere good fortune. I didn't trust to anything except Rocco, and he deceived me. But why did you quarrel with him? I didn't quarrel with him. I found him embalming a corpse in the state bedroom one night. "'You what?' Babylon almost screamed. "'I found him embalming a corpse in the state bedroom,' repeated Rexall in his quietest tones. The two men gazed at each other, and then Rexall replenished Babylon's glass. "'Tell me,' said Babylon, settling himself deep in an easy chair and lighting a cigar. And Rexall thereupon recounted to him the whole of the posen episode, with every circumstantial detail so far as he knew it. It was a long and complicated recital, and occupied about an hour. During that time little Felix never spoke a word, scarcely moved a muscle. Only his small eyes gazed through the bluish haze of smoke. 
the clock on the mantelpiece tinkled midnight. "'Time for whisky and soda,' said Rexall, and got up as if to ring the bell, but Babylon waved him back. "'You have told me that this Samson Levi had an audience of Prince Eugen to-day, but you have not told me the result of that audience,' said Babylon. "'Because I do not yet know it, but I shall doubtless know to-morrow.' In the meantime, I feel fairly sure that Levi declined to produce Prince Eugen's required million. I have reason to believe that the money was lent elsewhere. Hmm, mused Babylon, and then, carelessly, I am not at all surprised at that arrangement for spying through the bathroom of the state apartments. Why are you not surprised? Oh, said Babylon, it is such an obvious dodge, so easy to carry out. As for me, I took special care never to involve myself in these affairs. I knew they existed. I somehow felt that they existed. But I also felt that they lay outside my sphere. My business was to provide board and lodging of the most sumptuous kind to those who didn't mind paying for it. And I did my business. If anything else went on in the hotel, under the rose, I long determined to ignore it unless it should happen to be brought before my notice. And it never was brought before my notice. However, I admit that there is a certain pleasurable excitement in this kind of affair, and doubtless you have experienced that. I have, said Rexall simply, though I believe you are laughing at me. By no means, Babylon replied. Now what, if I may ask the question, is going to be your next step? That is just what I desire to know myself, said Theodore Rexall. Well, said Babylon, after a pause, let us begin. In the first place, it is possible you may be interested to hear that I happened to see Jules today. You did? Rexall remarked with much calmness. Where? Well, it was early this morning, in Paris, just before I left there. The meeting was quite accidental, and Jules seemed rather surprised at meeting me. He respectfully inquired where I was going, and I said that I was going to Switzerland. At that moment I thought I was going to Switzerland. It had occurred to me that, after all, I should be happier there, and that I had better turn back and not see London any more. However, I changed my mind once again, and decided to come on to London, and accept the risks of being miserable there without my hotel. Then I asked Jules whither he was bound, and he told me that he was off to Constantinople, being interested in a new French hotel there. I wished him good luck, and we parted. "'Constantinople, eh?' said Rexall. A highly suitable place for him, I should say. But, Babylon resumed, I caught sight of him again. Where? At Charing Cross, a few minutes before I had the pleasure of meeting you. Mr. Jules had not gone to Constantinople after all. He did not see me, or I should have suggested to him that in going from Paris to Constantinople it is not usual to travel via London. The cheek of the fellow, exclaimed Theodore Rexall. The gorgeous and colossal cheek of the fellow. Chapter 22 In the Wine Cellars of the Grand Babylon Do you know anything of the antecedents of this jewel? asked Theodore Rexall, helping himself to whisky. Nothing whatever, said Babylon. Until you told me, I don't think I was aware that his true name was Thomas Jackson, though of course I knew that it was not Jules. I certainly was not aware that Miss Spencer was his wife, but I had long suspected that their relations were somewhat more intimate than the nature of their respective duties in the hotel absolutely demanded. All that I do know of Jules, who will always be called Jules, is that he gradually, by
by some mysterious personal force, acquired a prominent position in the hotel. Decidedly, he was the cleverest and most intellectual waiter I have ever known, and he was specially skilled in the difficult task for retaining his own dignity while not interfering with that of other people. I'm afraid this information is a little too vague to be of any practical assistance in the present difficulty. What is the present difficulty? Raxel queried, with a simple air. I should imagine that the present difficulty is to account for the man's presence in London. That is easily accounted for, said Raxel. How? Do you suppose he is anxious to give himself up to justice, or that the chains of habit bind him to the hotel? Neither, said Raxel. Jules is going to have another try, that's all. Another try at what? At Prince Eugen, either at his life or his liberty, most probably the former this time almost certainly the former. He has guessed that we are somewhat handicapped by our anxiety to keep Prince Eugen's predicament quite quiet, and he is taking advantage of that fact. As he already is fairly rich on his own admission, the reward which has been offered to him must be enormous, and he is absolutely determined to get it. He has several times recently proved himself to be a daring fellow. Unless I am mistaken, he will shortly prove himself to be still more daring. But what can he do? Surely you don't suggest that he will attempt the life of Prince Eugen in this hotel. Why not? If Reginald Dimmock fell on mere suspicion that he would turn out unfaithful to the conspiracy, why not Prince Eugen? But it would be an unspeakable crime, and do infinite harm to the hotel. True, Raxel admitted, smiling. Little Felix Babylon seemed to brace himself for the grasping of his monstrous idea. How could it possibly be done? he asked at length. Dimmock was poisoned. Yes, but you had Rocco here then, and Rocco was in the plot. It is conceivable that Rocco could have managed it. Barely conceivable. But without Rocco I cannot think it possible. I cannot even think that Jules would attempt it. You see, in a place like the Grand Babylon, as probably I needn't point out to you, food has to pass through so many hands that to poison one person, without killing perhaps fifty, would be a most delicate operation. Moreover, Prince Eugen, unless he has changed his habits, is always served by his own attendant, old Hans, and therefore any attempt to tamper with a cooked dish immediately before serving would be hazardous in the extreme. Granted, said Raxall, the wine, however, might be more easily got at. Had you thought of that? I had not, Babylon admitted. You are an ingenious theorist. But I happen to know that Prince Eugen always has his wine opened in his own presence. No doubt it would be opened by Hans. Therefore, the wine theory is not tenable, my friend. I do not see why, said Raxall, and I very seldom drink it. But it seems to me that a bottle of wine might be tempered with while it was still in the cellar, especially if there was an accomplice in the hotel. You think, then, that you are not yet rid of all your conspirators? I think that Jules might still have an accomplice within the building. And that a bottle of wine could be opened and recorked without leaving any trace of the operation? Babylon was a trifle sarcastic. I don't see the necessity of opening the bottle in order to poison the wine, said Raxel. I've never tried to poison anybody by means of a bottle of wine, and I don't lay claim to any natural talent as a poisoner. But I think I could devise several ways of managing the trick. Of course, I admit I may be entirely mistaken as to Jules' intentions. Ah, said Felix Babylon, the wine cellars beneath us are one of the wonders of London. 
I hope you are aware, Mr. Rexall, that when you bought the Grand Babylon, you bought what is probably the finest stock of wines in England, if not in Europe. In the valuation, I reckoned them at sixty thousand pounds. And I may say that I always took care that the cellars were properly guarded. Even Jules would experience a serious difficulty in breaking into the cellars without the connivance of the wine clerk, and the wine clerk is, or was, incorruptible. I am ashamed to say that I have not yet inspected my wines, smiled Rexall. I have never given them a thought. Once or twice I have taken the trouble to make a tour of the hotel, but I omitted the cellars in my excursions. Impossible, my dear fellow, said Babylon, amused at such a confession. To him, a great connoisseur and lover of fine wines, almost incredible. But really, you must see them tomorrow. If I may, I will accompany you. Why not tonight? Rexall suggested, calmly. Tonight? It is very late. Hubbard will have gone to bed. And may I ask who is Hubbard? I remember the name but dimly. Hubbard is the wine clerk of the Grand Babylon, said Felix, with a certain emphasis. A sedate man of forty. He has the keys of the cellars. He knows every bottle of every bin, its date, its qualities, its value. And he is a teetotaler. Hubbard is a curiosity. No wine can leave the cellars without his knowledge, and no person can enter the cellars without his knowledge. At least that is how it was in my time, Babylon added. We will wake him, said Rexall. But it is one o'clock in the morning, Babylon protested. Never mind, that is, if you consent to accompany me. A cellar is the same by night as by day, therefore why not now? Babylon shrugged his shoulders. As you wish, he agreed with his indestructible politeness. "'And now to find this Mr. Hubbard, with his key of the cupboard,' said Rexall, as they walked out of the room together. Although the hour was so late, the hotel was not, of course, closed for the night. A few guests still remained about in the public rooms, and a few fatigued waiters were still in attendance. One of these latter was dispatched in search of the singular Mr. Hubbard, and it fortunately turned out that this gentleman had not actually retired, though he was on the point of doing so. He brought the keys to Mr. Rexall in person, and after he had had a little chat with his former master, the proprietor and the ex-proprietor of the Grand Babylon Hotel proceeded on their way to the cellars. These cellars extend over, or rather under, quite half the superficial areas of the whole hotel, the longitudinal half which lies next to the strand. Owing to the fact that the ground slopes sharply from the strand to the river, the Grand Babylon is, so to speak, deeper near the strand than it is near the Thames. Towards the Thames there is, Below the entrance level, a basement and a sub-basement. Towards the strand there is basement, sub-basement, and the huge wine-cellars beneath all. After descending the four flights of the service stairs, and traversing a long passage running parallel with the kitchen, the two found themselves opposite a door, which, on being unlocked, gave access to another flight of stairs. At the foot of this was the main entrance to the cellars. Outside the entrance was the wine-lift, for the ascension of delicious fluids to the upper floors, and, opposite, Mr. Hubbard's little office. There was electric light everywhere. Babylon, who, as being most accustomed to them, held the bunch of keys, opened the great door, and then they were in the first cellar, the first of a suite of five. Rexall was struck not only by the icy coolness of the place, but also by its vastness. Babylon had seized a portable electric hand-light, attached to a long wire, which lay handy, and, waving it about, disclosed the dimensions of the place. By that flashing illumination the subterranean chamber looked unutterably weird and mysterious, 
with its rows of numbered bins stretching away into the distance till their radiance was reduced to the occasional far gleam of the light on the shoulder of a bottle. Then Babylon switched on the fixed electric lights, and Theodore Rexall entered upon a personally conducted tour of what was quite the most interesting part of his own property. To see the innocent enthusiasm of Felix Babylon for these stores of exhilarating liquid was what is called in the North a sight for serene. He displayed to Rexall's bewildered gaze, in their due order, all the wines of three continents, nay, of four, for the superb and luscious Constantia wine of Cape Colony was not wanting in that most Catholic collection of vintages. Beginning with the unsurpassed products of Burgundy, he continued with the clarets of Medoc, Bordeaux, and Sauternes, then to the champagnes of Aix, Hautevillier, and Pierry, then to the Hocks and Moselle of Germany, and the brilliant imitation champagnes of Maine, Neckar, and Naumburg, then to the famous and adorable Tokay of Hungary, and all the Austrian varieties of French wines, including Karlowitz and Sumlauer, then to the dry sherries of Spain, including purest Manzanilla, and Amontillado, and Vina de Pasto, then to the wines of Malaga, both sweet and dry, and all the Spanish reds from Catalonia, including the dark tent, so often used sacramentally, then to the renowned port of Oporto. Then he proceeded to the Italian cellar, and descanted upon the excellence of Barolo from Piedmont, of Chianti from Tuscany, of Orvieto from the Roman states, of the Tears of Christ from Naples, and the commoner Marsala from Sicily, and so on, to an extent and with a fullness of detail which cannot be rendered here. At the end of the suite of cellars there was a glazed door, which, as could be seen, gave access to a supplemental and smaller cellar, an apartment about fifteen or sixteen feet square. "'Anything special in there?' asked Rexall curiously, as he stood before the door and looked within at the serried ends of bottles. "'Ah!' exclaimed Babylon, almost smacking his lips. "'Therein lies the cream of all.' "'The best champagne, I suppose,' said Rexall. "'Yes,' said Babylon. "'The best champagne is there, a very special celery, as exquisite as you will find anywhere.' But I see, my friend, that you fall into the common error of putting champagne first among wines. That distinction belongs to Burgundy. You have old Burgundy in that cellar, Mr. Rexall, which cost me—how much do you think? Eighty pounds a bottle. Probably it will never be drunk, he added with a sigh. It is too expensive even for princes and plutocrats. Yes, it will, said Rexall quickly. You and I will have a bottle up tomorrow. Then, continued Babylon, still riding his hobby-horse, there is a sample of the Rheinwein, dated 1706, which caused such a sensation at the Vienna exhibition of 1873. There is also a singularly glorious Persian wine from Shiraz, the like of which I have never seen elsewhere. Also there is an unrivalled vintage of Romane Conti, greatest of all modern Burgundies. If I remember right, Prince Eugen invariably has a bottle when he comes to stay here. It is not on the hotel wine list, of course, and only a few customers know of it. We do not precisely hawk it about the dining-room. "'Indeed,' said Rexall. "'Let us go inside.' They entered the stone apartment, rendered almost sacred by the preciousness of its contents, and Rexall looked round with a strangely intent and curious air. At the far side was a grating, through which came a feeble light. "'What is that?' asked the millionaire sharply. "'That is merely a ventilation grating.' Good ventilation is absolutely essential. Looks broken, doesn't it? Rexall suggested, and then, putting a finger quickly on Babylon's shoulder, 
There's someone in the cellar. Can't you hear breathing, down there, behind that bin? The two men stood tense and silent for a while, listening, under the ray of the single electric light in the ceiling. Half the cellar was involved in gloom. At length, Rexall walked firmly down the central passageway between the bins and turned to the corner at the right. "'Come out, you villain!' he said in a low, well-nigh vicious tone, and dragged up a cowering figure. He had expected to find a man, but it was his own daughter, Nella Rexall, upon whom he had laid angry hands. End of chapter 21 and 22